Would you pray with me this morning, please? Father God, we submit ourselves to you. We submit ourselves, oh Father, we submit all that we are. We submit our hearts, we submit ourselves, we bow down before you. And we ask in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, that you would bless us, Father, with the inspiration of your Holy Spirit, to hear your word, to speak your word and to hear it, Father, to apply it unto our lives. My Father God, unto you be all of the glory and all of the praise and all of the honor and all of the thanksgiving unto you, Almighty One, who sits on the throne. Unto you, O Lord, be all things, triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Be with us now and be with me, O Lord. In the name of Jesus, Father. Amen. Good morning, everyone. May I invite you, please, to open your Bibles uh, to chapter uh, 12 of the Gospel of John. Chapter 12 of the Gospel of John. If you did not bring your Bible, shame on you. No, I'm kidding. (laughs) If you did not bring your Bibles, there are some Bibles uh, in the pew right in front of you. Uh, You also have the insert that was... Uh, put in in the bulletin for you to follow the lessons and so on. But because I don't always stay in the lesson that was read today, it's important that you have your Bibles with you. But um, if you would open it, please, to the Gospel of John, uh, chapter 12. Uh, I think you all realize that Lent is quickly coming to the end, don't you? Um, next Sunday is already Palm Sunday, and with Palm Sunday we enter right into Holy Week, and all of the events of Holy Week, and then, and then Easter the following Sunday, April 5th. So we have had 40 days to be blessed, we have had 40 days perhaps where we abstain from some things, that were occupying the space that God should have been occupying all along, whether it was television, whether it was whatever. I I usually say to you, if you want to abstain from chocolate, that ultimately doesn't matter. It really doesn't add or take away, make take away some pounds, but uh, it really doesn't add anything spiritual to you. I'd rather that you use 40 days to take on something that will, at the end, really make a difference in your life and in your walk with the Lord. So you may have taken on reading a book. Certainly, we have sent all of you portions of the catechism, and we have asked you to read all of the catechism. Uh, I won't ask you how many of you have done it, but, um, but you probably have them in your computers. You can pull them and, and read them over again. But we want to look at all the catechism, the new Agna catechism, and I pray that all of it uh, blesses you in in many ways. Uh, But as as we are kind of concluding these 40 days and the season of Lent, it is fitting that we be at this chapter of John chapter 12, where where we hear again uh, of Jesus announcing his death. Uh, where Jesus is once again 
uh, focusing our, our attention on what happened on Good Friday. Uh, I have already preached to you once before, and I think uh, perhaps Father Steve did last week as well, uh, on the numerous times that Jesus announced uh, his, uh, his death, his suffering, and his resurrection. I want you to know that the cross did not surprise Jesus. It was always the plan of, of God. I think he knew it. He knew what it entailed, and that's part of the tears that we read about. And, and yet he says, I will not ask, Father, take this away from me. But, but he says, your will be done. And, and through, it, through it, he learned in, in, his humans, in his humanity and in sonship, he learned the idea of what it means to be obedient uh, to, to the Father. I mean, the Father dictates what to do. And Jesus, though he's God in his being, Jesus is still the Son. He's not the Father. And so the son learns obedience even through the suffering that he goes through. Uh, and so Jesus today leads us to understand once again and, and in different words uh, the idea of his suffering. At the beginning of the chapter, in chapter 12, verse 1, at the beginning of the chapter, the, the word tells us, uh, six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, who had been dead, whom he had raised from the dead. There they made him a supper, and Martha served. So if you kind of look with me and imagine with me the geography of, of the land of Israel... Probably one of the highest mountain tops or mount uh, in in all of Jerusalem is where the temple is. That's what's called Mount Zion or the Temple Mount. And then to the east, the the geography falls into what's called the Kidron Valley, and that's where the Jordan River runs down from Galilee all the way to the Dead Sea, thus creating the. Uh, the, 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 the valley creates the, the ability of the river to come down. But then you go up again another mount, which is where you have mount, uh, the, the Mount of the Olives, the Mount of Olives or the Garden of Olives. And then beyond that, as you're going toward Jericho to the east, you come to the city of Bethany. In the city of Bethany is where Lazarus lived. You all know the story of Lazarus, how Jesus raised him from the dead. You know the story of Mary and Martha, how Jesus visited their home, and Martha was so occupied uh, preparing food and serving, and Mary just sat to absorb the spiritual food. And, and Jesus said that she had chosen the right thing. And that's also the place where Jesus comes for dinner, possibly at this very moment, and, and Mary comes behind him and anoints his feet with very expensive oil and very expensive frankincense, uh, perfume, okay? And, and that, that's what's, what happens. That's, that's the meaning of, of Bethany. And that's what we find Jesus at the very beginning of the chapter. He's, he's journeying from the east across the, uh, the Jordan River, and he's coming into the area of, of Jerusalem, um, that's chapter 12, verse 1. And so we're looking 
at a probably, because it says the six days before the Passover, we're looking at Saturday. We're looking at Saturday before Holy Week. Okay, so that's the day that, that the chapter begins with. By the time we get to verse 12, we read that Jesus is entering Jerusalem riding on a donkey. Okay, and we read in verse 12, the next day, the next day from Saturday being Sunday, which is the day that Jesus entered Jerusalem, it says, the next day, a great multitude that had come to the feast when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him and cried out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So that's Sunday. The events that we're dealing with today occurred after that, which is verse 20. That was verse 12. That makes these events possibly taking place on Monday or the most Tuesday of Holy Week. You with me? So that's, that's where we're at today, already into Monday or Tuesday of Holy Week. Jesus is probably in the temple. Jesus is probably in the temple because that's what the Gospels tell us. And he's probably in the area of the temple that is called the Court of the Gentiles. And I, I dare to say he's in the court of the Gentiles because these Greek individuals come to see him and they surely could not enter where the Jewish people could enter. They were Greek. Now they were worshipers of God, which means they are in the process, if not already finished, but they seem to be in the process of being proselytized. They seem to, to have come to know uh, Yahweh, the Lord God of, of the Israelites, and they've come to worship, and I'm not sure they're fully entered into Judaism. So that's what prompts me to say that Jesus is probably in the court of the Gentiles. These Greeks were Greek by birth. Their parents probably were Greek, and they most likely spoke Greek. And, he, and uh, it doesn't seem like they uh, speak Hebrew. It doesn't seem from, from, the, from the passage. But they most likely are from, uh, from uh, the city of, of Bethany, um, up, up north, there's another Bethany up north to the, to the east uh, uh, and actually to the north of the Sea of Galilee. Or they may very well be from the area called Decapolis or the Ten Cities, which are just east of the, uh, of the Sea of Galilee. And, and it was fairly occupied by Greek people. Not Jewish people, but Greek people. So they're very likely are from that area. And one of the things they, that tells me perhaps they're from that area is that when they come to approach Jesus, uh, the first thing they do is they approach Philip. And they approach Philip most likely because Philip is from Bethany, from that area up there. But secondly, because Philip is a Greek name and it's not a Hebrew name. Philip actually means lover of horses. And so 
what these Greeks do as they are coming before Jesus, or they want to speak to Jesus, they find a point of contact. They find someone that they can speak to, that might understand their, their Greek language, and that might even serve as a translator between what they want to say to Jesus or what questions they might have. So these Greek individuals, we're not told how many, but certainly sees more than one. These Greek individuals have come to worship at the temple. They hear that Jesus is there, and they want to talk to Jesus. So they come to Philip. Uh, Philip says, just a second. So he goes and he finds Andrew. And Andrew and him go and speak to Jesus. And tell Jesus that he has these Greek individuals who had come to speak to him. Now we're not told at all in the scripture what this conversation is about. We're not told that what their questions were. We're, we're not told what their interest is. We, we're not even told that Jesus actually spoke to them. Because what happens is the moment that, that they tell Jesus that the Greeks are at the door uh, or nearby and want to speak to him, Jesus doesn't respond with, let them in, or, or where are they, bring them to me. He doesn't respond with any of that. Jesus' response basically is, ah, the hour has come. He sees these Greeks coming to him as a sign of the time. As a sign that the hour to complete the mission the Father had assigned him is now about to be finished. The visit of these Greeks seemed to be, by the response of Jesus, uh, it seems to be, okay, this is what I was waiting for. This is a sign that the hour is now at hand. Now, we all know from reading the Gospels that Jesus mostly and most of the time ministered to Hebrews. Whether it was in Judea or in Galilee, he was always among the Jews and teaching the Jews and visiting the cities where the Jews occupied. But we also know that Gentiles have somewhat, at least in the periphery, been involved with Jesus. Beginning with the wise men that came from the east. They were not Jews. They were probably Babylonians. And then we find at times Jesus ministering to the needs of a Roman centurion. Whether to heal a daughter or to heal a servant. Or then he goes far east and he ministers to the family of a certain Syrophoenician woman that lived in, 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 uh, in Tyre and Sidon near the Mediterranean Sea and heals her daughter of a demon possession. So Jesus is, you see, for Jesus, nationality is not an issue. For Jesus, what's an issue is who's in front of him and who needs him. Ministry for Jesus is who's right in front of him. It doesn't matter where they came from. But we do know from the Gospels that Jesus ministers primarily to the Jews. So when these Greeks come seeking him with a heart open and their ears hungry and their souls thirsty for Jesus, it is a sign to him 
that he's now to fulfill what the Father had commissioned for him to do. Because what Jesus is seeing in this visit of the Greeks is the openness of the Gentiles. The openness of the Gentiles to hear the gospel. The hunger of the nations begin to become visible so that the gospel does not, is not any longer for the Jew alone, but he begins to see the open door that the nations, the races, the tribes, the people, the many languages are beginning to hear and seek and hunger and want and, and look for him. That's what he's seeing in the visit of these Greeks. And so he knows that that is the sign that he becomes the Messiah for the world and not just the Messiah for, for the Jews. And so he begins to announce that the hour has come. That the hour has come. He announces that they are the sign of his imminent death and of the necessity that he would die for the world, for the whole world, Jews and Gentiles. And then he gives a teaching which is really what's important for me today. He gives a teaching which is not, I might say it's not a parable, but it certainly is a parabolic teaching. Because he uses an example of a grain of wheat. And he basically says that if you take a grain of wheat and you put it in a shelf or you put it inside a glass and you put it in a shelf, it will forever stay just a grain of wheat and it will forever stay alone. Wherever you put it, it will just stay alone. But he says, but if you take that grain of wheat and you bury it in the ground and it dies... By germination, it becomes a plant, and that plant then gives a great harvest of wheat and of many more seeds of wheat. So Jesus begins to speak about himself and about his death in this parabolic manner of a grain of wheat. Basically, what Jesus is saying is this, that the life for the many would come from the death of the one. That the life of the many would come from the death of the one. Unless the one is willing to die, there will be no harvest. It will remain a lone grain of wheat wherever you put it. It will produce nothing, and it will do nothing of lasting consequence. But if you take that grain of wheat and you bury it and it dies, it turns into a bush, it turns into a plant, and it turns into wheat, and it turns into many grains. And if you bury those grains, then you get a huge harvest. And Jesus begins to speak of himself in this manner. We need to be able to connect what Jesus is talking about with these Gentiles beginning to push the door open because the Gentiles are the harvest 
that is born from the one grain of wheat that is buried and dies. That we are the harvest. That we are welcoming to the kingdom of God independent of our nationality, independent of our birth, independent of our language, independent of our colors, independent of our beliefs. We are all part of the harvest of God because one died for the sins of all. And whoever comes to Jesus becomes part of that great harvest of souls. That great harvest of souls. Unless one dies, the others will not have life. We need to be able to connect what Jesus is talking about and the visit of the Greeks. We need to connect it to the fact that you and I have life because one died. And he died for you. That you may have life. And he died for me and for you. That we can have life. We also need to connect it and make sure that we understand before I go in any other direction. That this passage is solely about Jesus. Jesus is the grain of wheat. Jesus is the grain of wheat that dies. Jesus is the grain of wheat that gives life to all that come to him. I mean, wherever else direction I may go today, you need to understand the passage is strictly about Jesus. Jesus was willing to come, become a man like one of us, so that he could die as one of us and in the place of mankind to give life to all. The grain, the parable, is strictly about Jesus. However, if we are going to learn to apply the Word of God to our own lives and not leave Jesus somewhere in history 2,000 and some years back, if Jesus is going to become more than a figure of history like any great teacher or like any great man or woman that has ever existed, Jesus needs to be incarnated in you and in me today. Because Jesus is not a person of his time. Jesus is a person of all times. Jesus did not die, resurrect, ascended to heaven, and is not present anymore. Jesus is ever-present with us. So when we look at the Word of God, yes, we need to understand it in its context. We need to understand it in, in its historical and geographical setting. But we also need to say, what does it matter to me? What effect does the Word of God have in me? How am I... How am I an imitator of my Lord? How does Jesus live in me? How do I make Jesus alive to others today? What, how can I take the Word of God, learn it, put it in my heart, and become what Jesus wants me to become? Because that is the ultimate goal of all preachers and the ultimate goal of every single believer and anyone who hears the Word of God is to apply it to their own lives. If we can't do that, we're leaving Jesus into a history book or a theology book 
and that's where he stays without affecting or effecting anything in this life. We need to always read scripture and say, Lord Jesus, what are you saying to me today? How do I become, how do I become you to all that I meet? How do I live Jesus in my environment, in my family, in my life, with my neighbors? How do I live Jesus out? That's the ultimate goal of any time that we read Scripture or come to Scripture. So if I want to help you apply what Jesus is talking about, and let me make sure that I make it clear, this passage is strictly about Jesus, it's not about us. We're just trying to apply it to ourselves and to our lives. But this is about Jesus. Jesus is the wheat, the grain of wheat that was buried, died, and brought out a harvest that you and I are part of by faith, by the work of God and the Holy Spirit. But how do I live Jesus? How do I incarnate Jesus today in my life? First of all, in order for us to make Jesus visible to the world today and to incarnate it, we also need to die. We need to die to self. We need to die to that powerful thing that is so natural of the flesh in us. That self, that self-centeredness, that that we call me-ism. You know that me-ism? As if life is all about me. As if I'm the most important thing alive and everybody else can take second place. That me-ism that is so gravely implanted in our souls and in our hearts. We need to learn to die to that. We need to learn to die to that. That me-ism. That in-focus. Look at me. What What am I getting out of this? We ask that question all the time. In every relationship, in everything, whether at work or anywhere else, what is there for me in this? What I want, what I need, what is good for me? We have to die to that. We have to kind of change the focus of our attention and the focus of our intentions and the focus of our lives away from the me, away from the self, away from that egoism that is natural to us. We need to turn it around. And first of all, we need to say, what is there about God? A focus from the me to a focus on God. Because let me tell you, there's a lot of people in this world that they know enough about God to save them. There's a lot of people in this world that a sermon is not going to convince them of more facts, more theology, more of anything. They already know it. 
they just haven't made the decision in their lives that if God is who He says He is, we all have to fall down before Him and worship Him. They're still caught in the meism. They're still caught in the, I'm in control of my ship. I'm in control of my life. They haven't yet said, I really am in control of nothing. Because I can't control my destiny. I can't control my future. All I can control is where I'm driving from after church. But I have no more control over anything in my life. I need to give things over to God. So the focus of dying to self needs to be turned around so that it's not about me, it's about God first of all. Because once it's about God, He immediately tells us, go serve your brother and your sister. You cannot love your neighbor as yourself unless you love God with all of your heart and soul and mind. If you reverse that commandment and you put love your neighbor as yourself and then love God, you'll never do it. It's when you love God and surrender to God and submit to God and bow down to God and everything that he immediately tells you, get up and go serve your brother and your sister. Because that's what the command is. Dying to self is dying, is changing the focus from me from me as the center of the universe and as the center of my life to God being the center of my life. That alone will transform us. And then we become to be more other-centered rather than me-centered. Then we begin to see the needs of others. Then we begin to see that others are important too. That they need the gospel as I needed them one day. Our whole focus of life changes. We must die to that self that says, me, me, me. And we'll become people that look out to them and others that I need to love them as God loves me. Let me ask you a couple of questions here. Will this life that you live, this life that you are living right now, which is really a gift of God, because our lives could have been stopped at any moment, from the moment we first breathed to just a few seconds ago, our life could have been snuffed out just like that. Life as it is, is a gift of God. Every day is a gift of God. Every moment, every opportunity is a gift of God. Will this life that you're living today, will it matter? Will it matter in the long run? Will your life that you've been allowed to live matter? Will it make a difference? How important is your life? Is it about self-satisfaction? It's about you and what you can get from this life? Or can this life matter to something much bigger and more greater or greater than, than this moment, than this life? Will your life matter? 
will it matter? Will you make a difference in this life? Will you make a difference? What is the purpose for which you've come into this life? For you to live and die and that's it, it's gone? And you lived it and, and you spend it as you want it and then you're gone and that's it? Or is there a higher purpose for which you can live this life to the glory of God? Is there a heavenly purpose that you can live for? Jesus said this, For this purpose I came to this hour. Jesus had a purpose and it involved the cross. It involved dying and being buried so that he could be a harvest and produce a harvest. What will your life produce? What is your purpose in this life? Is the Father glorified in your life? Because Jesus said, Father, glorify thy name. And the Father answered right back, I have glorified it already and I will glorify it again. And I say, glorify it again, Father. Glorify it in my life. Let my life be such that I glorify the Father and that I glorify him over and over and over and over again. That Jesus is glorified through this life, this puny little life that is so short because most people don't live a hundred years. It's so short and it goes by so fast. Let it matter for something greater with a greater future. Let this life matter. Don't waste it. Because you don't get to live it again. What is your purpose if it's not to glorify the Father? And that the Father be glorified and honors you. How is Jesus glorified in you? That only will happen when you change the focus from the self-centeredness to the other-centeredness. When you become what today is termed missional. That's the term today. That's the big word. But basically it's other-centered. Other-centered. There's people around us everywhere that is in need of a Christian to minister to them. Or just to love them. Or just to serve them. Or just to speak to them. There are people that we meet all around us every single day. That could use not the word. But the active word of God. Our Christianity needs to become visible. Lived. Incarnational. Not just learned in the head. Or kept stored in the heart. But lived out. And Jesus, if we're going to apply this word of Jesus of learning to die in order to have a harvest, we're going to need to die to the self so we can have a harvest of souls. What, what's your inheritance? Money? What are you leaving to your children or to your grandchildren? Money, education, wonderful things. How about leaving them eternity? How about leaving them eternal life? Nobody can take that away from them. The money will be gone. The houses will collapse. 
The education will die with them. But eternal life is theirs forever and ever. And that eternal life is only in Jesus Christ. That's the harvest. What's, what are you going to leave behind when this life is all done and over? What is your harvest? Are you going to be a lone grain saved but in a shelf? Alone? Or are you going to make this life count for the glory of God and leave behind a harvest of souls that will continue to glorify God after you're gone? How will the world see in you and in me a living Jesus today? Because that's what it's about. It's us being Jesus. One of the, one of the, 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 the sentences in our mission statement at St. David's is to live Jesus. Jesus has to be visible. When people enter this church and get to know us, Jesus must be visible here. When they meet you out there, Jesus must be visible in you. How's that going to happen? It's not going to happen without sacrifice. It may cost you. It may cost you to be a Christian in a world that is not Christian. It may cost you your time to serve somebody. It may cost you your talent. It may cost you your treasure. It may cost you deep and big. But what other cost is there greater than the cost of Jesus to spend everything that we own and everything that we have? To live Jesus will require sacrifice because unless it requires sacrifice you're not showing the fullness of who Jesus is. Jesus is that grain of wheat that was buried and died, and you and I need to sacrifice to die. So many things in our lives need to die until He becomes everything and all things. Then others will see that Jesus lives today, right now, in His people. Jesus in us and we in Jesus. Jesus is not a figure of history. Jesus is a God for all eternity. Everywhere to everyone. Sacrifice. Without it, you are no different than the rest of the people in the world. All people do good to others. But only Christians are willing to sacrifice and to die to self. And even suffer to help somebody else. Even put aside your own egocentric ways or your own what's there about me in this. To set it aside and say, I'm just going to serve because Jesus served me. I'm just going to love because Jesus loved me. I'm just going to incarnate the love of God for me in my love for that other person. Jesus sacrificed, Jesus loved, and Jesus served. And those are the marks that need to be part of us if we are living Jesus. We need to be other-focused, not me-focused. Other-focused and then serve them and love them in the name of Jesus and by the power of the Spirit. Because otherwise, we are not really 
we're not really applying the Word of God in its fullness or the example of Jesus in its fullness to our lives. We may be saved, we may be Christians, we may feel very good about it, but when do we get to do the stuff? When do we get to live the gospel? When do we get to do it like Jesus told us to go do it? Clearly the passage is about Jesus. He is the grain of wheat who, who was buried and died, and we are part of that harvest. But so is Jesus incarnate in us today. And you and I, see, you are responsible for your harvest. I'm responsible for my harvest. Let me tell you, you know people that I'll never, I'll never reach. But when you sacrifice and you die to self in your own environment, with your own family, with your own friends, you will have a harvest that is great in your own way and in your own life. I get to have mine in my life. But the harvest ultimately belongs to the Lord. And when this puny life of mine is done, I have to die with the assurance that God is always good. So good that he used this nothing piece of clay, born of the earth, destined to back to the earth, and he used it for a life that mattered. It mattered to somebody. It made, it made a splash to the glory of God. That's what Jesus is talking about here. Greeks come and see him because the door of the Gentiles begins to open. But Jesus teaches us that he who saves his life will end up losing it. And he who hates his life for the sake of the gospel will earn a life that he couldn't buy, he couldn't earn, he couldn't find unless they came to Jesus Christ. And it's all to the glory of the Father who will glorify his, himself in your life. And that's what this message is about. A grain of wheat remains alone, lonely, ineffective really for anything other than itself but if it dies it grows into a harvest that has repercussions for eternity for eternity and that's a long time stand with me please